Uh, hey, welcome to Sunday School. Um, it's the first time I've been in Sunday School in a little bit. Uh, when we were talking through, it's kind of like a play on words, so we were going through some different ideas of what we were going to call this. Uh, and Sunday School seemed to fit, right? So, but we're, it, it's, uh, uh, somebody was asking if we were doing Sunday School if I had candy for everybody. Because I guess, you know, in Sunday School you're giving candy. Um, two weeks, <laughs> you know, when you come so many times in a row, you get a candy uh, or something like that. Uh, or if we're going to be memorizing, you have, you're going to have Bible verses to memorize. Um, but really, Sunday school, we wanted, uh, pastors been really talking through and desiring how we do systematic teaching of the Bible um, with the old Sunday school being not being in curriculum, not being in kind of what we do. And so uh, we were kind of thinking on it and praying about it. And many of you know that I've gone back to school the last year and a half. I'm doing my master's and uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot and I have a lot of knowledge that I'm like, I, I'm itching just to, uh, to, to get out. And so we, we were talking to us, hey, let's do these classes that are more, more in-depth, more theologically based. Um, we can get in the weeds on some things that maybe we're not preaching on a Sunday or even a Wednesday night going verse by verse, able to get into. And, uh, and then we're like, let's call it Sunday school. And um, initially we had like this whole idea, we were gonna do a video and we were gonna have somebody, uh, you know, like Miss Glenda Keppen throw a backpack on and be like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm going back to school. And then we were gonna walk him right into Sunday school. Um, but it's cool. And so uh, I wanna kind of talk through like what our time at Sunday school is gonna look like. So this class we're going to do is eight weeks long. We're going to give it a test run and see what happens. Uh, if it goes well, well, we're going to take a break. We're going to take some time off. And then Sunday school again, it'll be a whole different topic. Our first topic uh, is going to be on this idea of reading and interpreting the Bible. Um, because it's so important not only to know, uh, you know that this is the word of God, um, but also how do we approach the word. Um, in the early church, there was uh, this uh, church father, his name's St. Irenaeus. And St. Irenaeus was a disciple of a, a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of uh, John the Baptist. Not John the Baptist, John the Apostle. John uh, the Beloved. And so uh, St. Irenaeus was actually a a disciple of John, he, he would have potentially even heard John speak, which is amazing. And St. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon. And in Lyon and in the early church on the second century, there was a heresy uh, going around called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was um, uh, a belief in essence uh, that we are trying to escape our bodies so that we can be truly free and become free spirits. And St. Irenaeus, he writes a lot about dealing with this heresy of Gnosticism. And when he deals with Gnosticism, he, he, he writes as early as in the second century that he confronts Gnosticism uh, with proper interpretation of the scriptures. And he, uh, he, he comes against the heresy of Gnosticism as a bad interpretation of scriptures. And if we don't understand how to read the Bible, but also how to interpret the Bible, we get weird and we get, uh, we get heresies and we get cults and we get all of this stuff. So it's important for us to understand how to read and interpret the word. 
So, kind of what it's going to look like tonight, we're going we're gonna to ter- talk on this idea of the need to interpret and how to interpret. Week two is going to be looking at the epistles. Week three, we're going to have a guest speaker. His name is Chris Palmer. He was with us at Com- Presence Conference in August. Chris Palmer is uh, working on his PhD, but he's also the uh, dean of uh, Theos Seminary, is an unbelievable uh, teacher and preacher. He'll be with us that Sunday morning preaching, and then he's going to teach our Sunday school that night. And week four, we're going to look at Old Testament narrative and the Pentateuch. Week five, we're going to look at the Gospels and parables. Week six, we'll look at the Law and the Prophets. Week seven, the Psalms and wisdom literature. And then week eight, we're going to look at how to approach Revelation. And um, so how these nights will work, there's going to be a time of teaching. So I'll teach and kind of talk through kind of what we are going to be talking through that night. And then we're going to open up for Q&A. We want it to be interactive, in-depth discipleship with a theological emphasis where we're growing together, we're learning together. And when we get into Q&A, there's nothing off limits as far as questions. It's meant to be interactive um, and, and us learning together. I understand that there's people from all different um, spiritual, uh, maybe length and maturity in the room. So the goal is not to confuse anyone. The goal is for us all to learn together and for all of us to walk away of how to properly read and interpret uh, the Bible. Um, If you are interested, a lot of kind of what we'll be talking through is going to be found in this book, called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If you want to pick it up, you're more than welcome to. This will give you a little more in-depth, a little more time, may even help cement some things. Uh, It's written by a man named Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is an Assembly of God uh, theologian. He was the first Pentecostal uh, to ever um, uh, get his PhD in New Testament studies. And so pretty amazing. Actually, about... Three months ago, Gordon Fee went home to be with the Lord, and he's no longer with us, but yet he's still impacting us. Through this little book, they've sold like over a million copies of it. It's great. So how to read the Bible for all it's worth if you want to have some additional reading, uh, but don't, you don't have to. The goal is for us to have all of this, uh, us to talk through this stuff together. Cool? Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the ability to gather the ability, Lord, to study your word, the ability, God, that you've given us uh, the Bible and you've invited us to know you. Lord, I pray that we won't meet you on our terms. God will meet you on your terms. That, God, we won't meet you how we want it done, but, Lord, we come to your table, sit at your table, and feast on your word. Lord, I pray that we'll come with open hearts, open minds, open spirits. Challenge us in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Amen. So I got my whiteboard, so I'm going I'm to try kind of writing some stuff. Um, I've never done that before, so we'll see how that goes. So the whiteboard might be here tonight, and it might disappear next week. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives 
It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. See, what we believe about the Bible, I just want to kind of start with this, and, uh, because it's important to how we approach the Bible to understand, like, this is the foundation of us as a church, this is us as a part of our fellowship. We believe that the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, are verbally inspired of God, and they are the revelation of God to man. The Bible is the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. And so when we're talking about interpreting the Bible and reading the Bible, we want to be faithful to God and also be faithful to the scriptures. And uh, what we're going to be focusing on is more about how we actually study the Bible, not so much of how we read the Bible for devotional use. Uh, in this eight weeks of how we study the Bible, not simply for devotional use, because studying is going to inform our devotions. As we grow in knowledge, as we grow in uh, what the Bible has to say about different things, when we come across a scripture that might be tough in our devotional time, it's uh, the studying and the knowledge of that is going to inform our devotions. And so really, we're going to kind of get into some more, some more critical thinking uh, and devotional use is great, and it's needed, but we also have to read for learning and understanding. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from, idea-wise, is learning uh, to, to, to learn and to understand so that the learning and understanding will then inform our devotional reading. Now, I want to start all the way uh, back to how we've kind of gotten our own translations, right? We have the Bible, like how did we actually get this? How did we get here? Uh, because uh, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? Um, I think, I think we, we may all know that, but if you don't know that, the Bible wasn't written in English. Jesus didn't speak English. Jesus uh, spoke Aramaic. And uh, actually the, Hebrew, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament written in Greek, and now we have it in English. Um, so how did we get here to English? We're going to kind of take a, uh, a little journey. Uh, in, in 400 AD, a man named Jerome, he translated the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek into Latin, and this translation became known as the Vulgate. Vulgate in Latin actually means common. So Vulgate, I apologize because my handwriting is atrocious. Vulgate means common. It's called common because it was translated in fornity into the common language of the day, which was Latin. John uh, Wycliffe, he made the first translation into English in 1380. It was actually done in uh, just the New Testament, and it was called the Wycliffe Bible, and it was translated from the Vulgate. So from 400 AD, you have the Hebrew, you have the Greek, you have the Latin that then becomes the predominant use of the church, the Catholic church, for almost another thousand years. But what's fascinating is when John Wycliffe translated into English, it was actually forbidden to read, and Wycliffe experienced persecution for his translation into English. Because what had happened in this thousand-year time 
what the translation that Jerome wrote in 400 AD had actually been elevated by the Catholic Church, the translation of the Latin Bible that wasn't the original manuscripts, the translation had been elevated to an improper place where that was the word of God. It's a translation, but that is, that was the word of God for that time. So when a translation came out in English, that is not of God. Uh, I want to show us this just for a moment because we need to understand that translations are just that translations. Translations are tools to help us understand the meaning of God's word, but translations are not God's word. They hold God's word, but the translation itself is not. But sometimes we can get like the Catholic church did with the Vulgate and the Latin, where only the services for a thousand years, thousands of years were held in Latin, not in the language of the common people. So then people be, weren't able to experience God. It wasn't even in their language. They know what was going on. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're not taking a translation and holding it in a place that's improper um, because a translation is a way to help us to understand what is the word of God. Now, in 1526, a man named William Tyndall did a translation of the New Testament from Greek into English. So in 1526, the first translation from, from the Greek of the New Testament was done. So we're, we're looking beyond what uh, uh, Wycliffe did, which was a translation of a translation. He's going back to the original Greek to make the first translation. And now by the early 1600s, there were a variety of translations, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible, the Matthew Bible, the Coverdale Bible. There were all of these different translations from the Greek and the Church of England, and a guy by the name of King James uh, the, the first, they wanted to unite the readings of the churches because you gotta understand, there was Catholicism and the Church of England. That's it. There was no Assemblies of God. There was no uh, Church of God or Methodist. There was one church and then the Church of England became a second church and that is it. And uh, they had all of the power as far as, as, far as how uh, this was handled. And the King James said, well, we want to unite. And here with the Church of England, this is uh, the, whoever is the monarch is the head of the church. They have the authority of the church, similar to how the Pope and Catholicism has authority. Uh, Queen Elizabeth was the head of the Church of England. She passed away, and I believe it's King Charles now, right? Is that his name? I'm an American. I don't really understand. Uh, you know, we broke away from those people. So, um, <laughs> so King Charles is the head of the Church of England. And so they come together and they want to unite. So there's not all these different translations. And then they uh, come up with a new translation known as the authorized version or better known as the King James version because King James I authorized it. And in the year 1611, we get the King James Version. Now, the goal of the King James Version translators was to take the original Greek, 
take the original Hebrew texts that we have and to translate them into the language of ordinary people with enough dignity to be used in the church. Now, it's important for us to understand the KJV was not the first translation. There were 10, 20 plus different translations before 1611. Now, the KJV, uh, and it's especially in its first printing, was, was far from perfect. In fact, when it was first printed in 1611, there were two different versions of the King James Bible that were printed because they're different because they were printed on different presses and had different original copies. And there was the he version and the she version. And these two printers, and they, they, they printed these two different versions that actually kind of translated the passages of different segments into different meanings. So you have these kind of circulating and the KJV circulating, and there's two different versions of it. And so what happens is, is that there's a major uh, revision done in 1629, then another major uh, revision done to help with the interpretation and the translation of that in 1638, then another rendition of that in 1729. Why? Because from 1611 to 1729, language changes. The common language of people changes. Whoop. That was my foot. What a word meant 50 years ago means a lot different than what a word means now. Right? So, it's important for translations to update to meet our language. The word gay means something a lot different now than it did 50 years ago, right? So if I was to go and use that word um, uh, and just use it, but I didn't understand the context of now, you would assume something different of me if I said I'm gay, right? Right? I, I was happy 50 years ago. It meant happy, and you would use it. Now, I'm not using that language. Why? Because we, our language has changed. It's been updated. So, then, so you see in this time, 110 years, it's a up, big update. Then there was another big update from sev, in 1762 in what we know as the King James Version. Now, I want you to see this. This version, 1762, is the version of the King James Bible that we have today. It has not been updated. It's not been changed. It's not been uh, the, the manuscripts re-looked uh, at. Why am I saying this? Because I want to make sure that we don't fall in the same trap that the Catholic Church did with the Vulgate where we elevate a translation to a place it was never meant to be elevated. In fact, King James actually, there's, there's proof that he wanted the King James Bible translated so that he could actually divorce his wife. That he was actually like trying to divorce uh, one queen so he can marry somebody else. And, and he was getting, it's just like, it, it, gets, it gets really weird. And so it's, we need to make sure that we're not elevating to a place. Um, so yet some think 
that the KJV from 1769 is the only version people should use almost 300 years later, I want us to really see this, that scholars today are able to translate from a Greek text that draws on almost 6,000 New Testament manuscripts with some dating all the way back to the second century. We have older manuscripts of the Greek today than they had in 1611. The translations that they're able to do today are actually the most accurate translations of the Bible that we've ever been able to have. I be, it, what's fascinating is we live in one of the greatest times of biblical scholarship outside of the people that held the original manuscripts because we're able to understand, or at least have translated to us a Bible that is more accurate than they've had for thousands of years. Now, just a couple things. I just want to do a little comparison of uh, the King James Version and the NIV, just looking at an old translation, more with a little more updated translation. Now, understand my heart in this. I'm not uh, condemning your use of the KJV. I understand in our, in our culture, in our context, we are, we are, our emotions are tied to the way some things are said. Our emotions are tied and directly connected to how we learned scripture and memorization. And for most of us, it was in the KJV. It was in the New King James Version, right? That's where we learned the language of the Bible. But I want us to understand that we do not need to be so connected to a single translation and bury our heads in the sand because we want to be faithful to God's word, not a translation of God's word. This is where studying and interpreting the Bible comes in. So Acts chapter 8, verse 36 and 38, the KJV says this, as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, see here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 37, Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. That's the 1711 version. Let's look at the NIV. Verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Verse 37 is absent. Verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. So, why is there no verse 37? Because we have older manuscripts now of the Bible, of, uh, of this text in Acts, that do not have that verse 
and other manuscripts do. Now, we're not talking on, uh, we're not doing a class on how the, how the Bible is translated and all that. So we're not getting those weeds. If you have questions about it, we can talk about it. But, but what would happen through scribes is maybe to help uh, some doctrinal um, uh, questions, a scribe, a hundred years later, might add a notation. And then that notation, a hundred years later, becomes part of the scripture. But it was a scribe. It wasn't the original manuscripts. So we see how that changes the meaning of it. Uh, the eunuch's going, hey, here's some water. I want to get baptized. And he says, yeah, let's do it. The other is, hey, what do I have to do to be baptized? See how that changes the whole meaning and the whole interaction of what's happening. 1 John 5, 7 and 8, KJV says this, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in, in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Verse 7 and 8. Let's look at the NIV. Verse 7. For there are three that testify. Verse 8. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Now, I love 1 John 5, 7, and 8. I love how the King James uses it because it's like, oh, this is like, they're, they're in essence saying this is the Trinity. And this is what the Trinity is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three all in agreement. But it was an addition that was not in the manuscripts. So we want to be faithful to God's word and on his terms. Now, we believe in the Trinity, but we don't have to explicitly have the King James Version say it like this. We want it in its purest form. Revelation twenty-two nineteen, King James Version. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. The updated, uh, more uh, translation says, if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll now the language of that helps us understand that that it's speaking specifically about revelation as a scroll and not the entire book of the bible and god's word it's important for us to understand the context of things. So the translations that we have today, they use the oldest manuscripts we've ever had in history. We have the most accurate meaning of God's word in our context that we've ever had. And the word translation means to repro reproducing the meaning of a text that is in one language, which is the source language, as fully as possible in another language, the receptor language. Now, Bilingual people have an upper hand on us uh, people that are not bilingual because bilingual people understand translation with a much better meaning than, than one language people. 
Because Pastor Dave, if I'm saying something and you're gonna translate it into Spanish, you're trying to find the words to articulate most accurately how I would say it, right? Now, how you would translate that and Eli, how you translate that, you might actually get a little variation in that, but it doesn't mean that you are both wrong on what I'm saying. There's just a little variation in that. And so translation is a tool that helps us become faithful interpreters. So we have faithful translators that have translated the Bible for us into modern language. And now we want to be faithful interpreters. Now, what I want us to see is this. Uh, We are all interpreters. You are interpreting me right now. You're interpreting my body language. You're interpreting the tone of my voice. You're interpreting what I'm saying uh, up against um, maybe your past. You're interpreting it based off other teachings you've heard. We We are interpreters, right? We've all heard the phrase that perception is reality, right? Why? Because as interpreters, we all interpret things differently. Yet, in our differences of interpretation, we still want to be faithful to scripture. So first, we got to understand, I'm an interpreter. And so how, how I interpret, I want to I interpret things a little more properly. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this. Literally first. Literarily. Often I hear people say, I interpret the Bible literally. We've all heard this. You might even think this like, I want to be somebody that interprets the Bible literally. Well, I I know we want to wear that as a badge of honor and as a way of saying, I want to be faithful to the text. That's in essence what we're saying. I read the Bible literally, therefore I'm I'm faithful to the text, right? Um, But the truth is you don't interpret the Bible literally. Psalms 18.2. Let's think of this literally. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my sword, the power that saves me in my place of safety. If we read that literally, then you can walk outside and find a rock and say, this is my God. And we can hold a shield up and say, this is my, the Lord is my shield. Now, we're not reading that literally. We're using some imagery. We're using a a metaphor. God is not a literal rock, right? He's figuratively our rock. And rock has more meaning in the context of the scripture than in the literal meaning, than, than in the literal translation of that. So we do not simply want to read literally. We want to read Literarily, 
We want to read on God's terms, not on our terms. We want uh, uh, to spend time learning the literature of the Bible, to to read literarily, because here's the truth. When you understand that there are many different types of biblical literature and you read literarily, there's going to be times you read literally. The Bible is... It's literal at some times. But if we were to only approach it in this way, we are not going to be faithful interpreters. We want to read the Bible not on our terms, but on God's terms. So let's look at types of biblical literature. There's many types. I'm going to list off nine. You you could possibly expand this list to about 10 or 12, depending on how you were looking at that literature. So number one is law. Two, history. Three, poetry. Four, wisdom. Five, you have prophecy. Six, gospels. Seven, you have letters. Eight, you have narrative. Nine, you have apocalyptic literature. It's important for us to understand that how God um, chose to use human authors to write a divine word the human authors, the human writers, as I should say, not authors. One, uh, the Bible is a collection of many different books with many different human writers, but one divine author. But God is using their context that they find themselves in along with a literature they want to write in to give us the word of God. So we want to read the Bible literarily because if you approach poetry the same way that you approach narrative, you're gonna gonna get into some weird stuff. If you approach the gospel, how you approach a letter, it's gonna be written different. You're gonna gonna miss on nuances. If If you treat apocalyptic literature, like in Daniel and Revelation, the same way you treat uh, how Paul's writing a letter to somebody you're going to read it improperly and interpret it improperly. So we're going to go through, we're going to break down each week the different types of literature and how to approach these books of the Bible. Like next week, we're going to go through the epistles and we're going to look at how do we approach the epistles. So tonight's really like a foundation for the importance of interpreting, understanding that we are interpreters but the Bible is a collection of many different books with, one, uh, with, with many different human writers and one divine author. Again, we must be careful to not read the Bible on our terms, but rather on the terms for how God chose for it to be written. It was God's divine plan that there be poetry in the Bible. Well, if it was his plan for there to be poetry, it should be my desire to learn how to approach that and so it can be applicable to my life. 
Now, what's great is with our modern translations, our translators have helped us in this way of understanding because I don't think there's anybody in here that, that knows Hebrew and can read it uh, and knows Greek and can read it. If you do, um, please let me know. I'd love to talk to you. That'd be cool. I'd love for you to read me some stuff and then translate it for me. But just like Brother Dave can read Spanish and is fluent in it, if I want to know if the Bible was written in Spanish, I would need his help to help me. And we would need faithful translators to help us become faithful interpreters. So let's talk about the need to interpret, right? The need to interpret. Are you hanging with me? All right. It's different. I, I don't do much teaching. I'm a preacher. So when we're preaching, you know, you hear some amen, so you know people are sleeping, they're not sleeping. This environment's a little bit different. You know, there wasn't a lot of amens. I was talking about the King James Version. What's up with that, right? <laughs> See, the aim of good interpretation is not to find a unique reading or to discover what no one has ever discovered before. The aim of good interpretation is to interpret appropriately and accurately what the Spirit has said and is saying. When we read our Bibles, the goal is not for you and I to get a fresh revelation that nobody's ever heard. In fact, <laughs> unique interpretations are usually wrong. The aim is not uniqueness. The aim is what we call the plain reading of the text. What is this passage? What is Paul? What is Isaiah? What are they actually trying to say? The plain reading of the text is this. It's what the author's intended meaning is. Now, there's two natures of interpretation. You have the nature of the interpreter. Which is our nature. The nature of the interpreter. Every reader is an interpreter. Every person that picks up the Bible is interpreting. When you pick up a fiction book that's not the Bible, and you're reading it. You're interpreting what they're saying, and the writer's trying to write it in a way that, that people can kind of uh, all see as closely to what the author has written. Every reader is an interpreter, and our understanding and the Spirit's intent sometimes can be two different things. We need to understand that if I'm an interpreter, if I'm interpreting, if perception's reality, my perception at times might be different than what the Spirit intended for that scripture to mean. But that doesn't mean we should shy away and go, I don't, can never do this. It's actually an invitation for us not to change God's word into what we want it to be not to change the word of God into our image, but for us to be transformed by the word of God into the image of Jesus. And that is our goal. Now, 
We, don't we won't get into this tonight, but as Pentecostals, I want to give you this. I just want to give you three things of how we as Pentecostals interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture in a triad that I'm going to write as spirit, Scripture, and community. Whoops, misspelled that, but it's fine. Let me scribble through it. Spirit, scripture, community. Why do we have a class like this? Why are we doing this together? Because when we interpret as individuals, we often have the propensity to interpret wrongly. So we interpret in community. Not just our community here, but the community of the church for 2,000 years. I know as Pentecostals, we think that the church was birthed in Acts 2 and then rebirthed in 1900 at the Azusa Street. Uh, but there were 1,900 years of faithful Christians and faithful individuals that we don't have to interpret on an island. We don't want to interpret on an island. We want to interpret with, with the Holy Spirit that inspired scripture that is now in us with scripture and in community. We want to interpret as Pentecostals in this manner. Now, I want to look at an interpretive example for how if we don't understand context, how language could get mixed up. Romans 13, 14. I know I'm picking on this a lot, but I apologize. I, I really don't. The New King James Version, I updated a little bit. New King James says this. Paul says, and make, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. When you hear the word flesh, what do you think of? Just shout it out. Body. That is the number, right? We think body. So make no provisions for the flesh. Make no provisions for your body. When I think of this, it's like, okay, like, he's talking about fasting. Well, we, we need to make sure that we whoop our bodies into shape. And some would say that Paul's speaking about bodily appetites or fasting in Romans 13. But when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not talking about bodies. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature, which is why the heresy of Gnosticism in the second century is still a heresy of today. Well, what do you mean? Like, because we think our bodies are evil and then the, how, how this whole thing works is we're gonna die and escape our bodies and become spirits and live in heaven with God forever. That's Gnosticism and is a heresy. You have a body now and you will forever have a body. That's 1 Corinthians 15. As Jesus died and as Jesus rose again with a glorified body, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we don't know what we'll be like, but we will be like him. You're actually gonna have a body like Jesus. The resurrection is not just victory over death. It's actually victory for us, our bodies to be redeemed. First Sunday of January, I talked on what it means to be human, that at, when Jesus returns, first lesson in chapter four, and we are transformed, the dead in Christ shall rise first. The last trumpet, we're gonna be transformed
formed together. What that means is we're actually going to be more human then than we are now. But if we misunderstand flesh, we're going to, it's going to affect our theology. Now, let me read Romans 13, 14 from the New Living Translation. It says, don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. You see how that's just a better translation? How it's a better translation for us to understand? Um, the antidote to bad, bad interpretation is not no interpretation, but good interpretation. So we have the nature of the interpreter, but we also have the nature of Scripture. Scripture is at the same time both human and divine. That the Bible is the word of God given in human words in history. Because the Bible is God's message, it has eternal relevance. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, it has historical particularity. So eternal relevance and historical particularity. And this is the tension that exists in interpreting the Bible between eternal relevance, my goodness, I am my father's son, and historical particularity. You can get the boy out of two egg, but you can't get the two egg out the boy. You know what I'm saying? The fact that the Bible has a human side is an encouragement to us that God invites humanity into relationship with divinity. And what we've got to understand when we are interpreting scripture is that God's word to us was first of all, God's word to them in their context, in their situation, in their culture, in their language, because God spoke to specific people at a specific time in a specific place with a specific culture, we need to learn how, how to interpret what God is saying to them so that we can know what God is saying to us. I'm going to give you a very basic uh, rule for interpretation. The interpretation of scripture, it cannot mean something for us that it did not mean for them. When we read the Bible, it cannot mean something for us today in its meaning different than what it meant for the people that it was given to because God gave the, the word that he was speaking to those people in their context. Now, um, Pastor Judah, how do I, oh, I, this is it, right? Look at this. We got, we went all out on a whiteboard. Isn't that great? <laughs> I was so excited when this thing came in. Thursday, it came in. I was like, I'll be put it together. I, was like, I just want to write things on it. You know, it's, it's, there's never been anything written on here. It's pretty incredible. So listen, we'll look at two levels of interpreting. Two levels of interpreting. Are you hanging out with me still? 
do I spell this? <laughs> you have exegesis. The two levels is you have to hear the word that they heard, which is what exegesis is, is going back and hearing the word they heard. And then you got to learn how to say that same word that they heard now. We're going to call this hermeneutics. So exegesis is, is to, the purpose is to find out what is the original intent of the words of the Bible. Many like being selectively exegetical. That's not our goal. We're going to be faithful to God, faithful to his word. The goal isn't to get the text to say what we want it to say. But what did it mean? Not everyone that is an expert, especially in 2023, is an expert. The, inter the, the internet can be your best friend. It can also be your worst enemy. Pastor has a phrase for this. We call it YouTube theology. Anybody can have a platform and give you an opinion on what the text says. We don't want YouTube theology. We want to be faithful interpreters. Amen? So there's two steps to exegesis. Context. The second is content. Context is important. You've got in context, you have the historical context. The historical context, which is the time and the culture of that author. So if we're talking about Isaiah, we're looking at when was Isaiah writing this? What was happening in that time? Who is Isaiah? Who's the audience that he's writing for? What is their intent? What is the author's setting? What's happening when he's writing this? But not just that, what is the reader's setting? What, is, what are the people setting in which he's writing for? The historical occasion of the book or the letter or the psalm. What is the occasion and the purpose of this text? That's what the historical is. The other context that you have also is the literary context. See, words only have meaning in sentences. If I give you I don't know why I'm using this word. It just seems like the most dramatic word, right? The three-letter word that I gave you earlier. If I give you that word um, and I just say the word, it has no meaning unless I put other words before it and other words after it. That words only have meanings in sentences. And biblical sentences, for the most part, have full and clear meaning only in relation to the before sentences and the after sentences of what's actually happening. So reading a word in its sentence and then a sentence in its paragraph and a paragraph in its overall context will help us get the literary meaning. How poetry is lined up. Poetry, biblical poetry would, would have uh, often uh, three lines and one line, two lines and one line. And, and, and there was a, a reasoning for it being set up. And understanding the literary context helps us understand the original author's meaning. Then you have content, right? Content is the meaning of what's being said in the sentences. 
and among the text at large. Content is going, all right, what's happening here? What's happening in the text? Who's it happening to? And then asking, well, why is it happening? It's getting to what is actually being said. So when you have context and you get into the content, you are now exegeting what the scripture is saying. There's exegesis, and then there's what we call what, what is called theologically eisegesis, which is imposing your meaning onto the text instead of letting the scripture speak for itself. God doesn't need our help. God's God all by himself. <laughs> so let's come to him on his terms. Now, once you got the exegesis, what did it meant for them? It meant, you know, I, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. We'll get to this in a little bit. I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you. Exegesis understands that that verse was not written for Tyler Howell for God to know that God's got my future bright for me. Exegesis, now, hermeneutics is different. Exegesis understands that the children of God were in captivity in Babylon and in exile and away from Jerusalem. And then God sent a prophet Jeremiah to say, I haven't forgotten about you. I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you, give you hope and a future. But did you know this, that 70 years went on after that word before it ever came to fruition. The people that received the word actually never got to see it fulfilled. God was just saying, I know, you, I know where you are. I haven't forgotten about you. They were never actually able to enter back into Jerusalem. So if we want to appropriate hermeneutics, and I mean, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but then we need to say, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. Well, God, I can trust your plans and never expect to see those plans come into fruition. That's actually what Jeremiah is saying and then appropriating for what it means for us today. We want to come to God on his terms. So hermeneutics is how we're applying the Bible's meaning here and now. I love what God has said in the past, but I need God to speak to me today. We don't, be, but here it's important to understand, we don't begin here in the here and now because the text does not start in the here and now we begin in the exegesis. A text, see, the, the text, it started with them. It started with the people that it was written with. So we begin with them. But what I love about the scripture is being inspired is the Holy Spirit that inspired it then is inspiring it up to us now. So though we begin with them, what scripture does is scripture moves towards us. And that's where we find ourselves. But again, a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers and its original hearers. So what do I need to help me be a faithful interpreter. You need a good Bible translation. 
So here at GT, we use the New Living Translation. Pastor preaches from it. Um, uh, the New Living Translation is set up very user-friendly. I, I, like, I like how it uses the language. It's a great translation for devotional use. It's also a great translation for theological use. It, 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 it isn't too loose that you are uh, missing any meaning. It, we, in fact, we showed, I showed there how it actually helped enhance the meaning for what was actually being said in the Greek to us. Now, you need a good Bible translation, other good translations. NIV is a good translation. Um, some people prefer the ESV. You're going to get, um, in the ESV, it's, they're going to call it a more literal translation, but you need to understand what they're saying, is that instead, they're, they're translating for what that word means more literally instead of literarily for what that word means in the context of that, of that sentence and in the context of what's happening. Um, there's a translation that's a more academic translation, if you would prefer, something like that, called the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, I prefer the New Living Translation and the NRSV. Now, if we're going to be, uh, how, help, help us, we need a good Bible translation, you, you get a good commentary. I'm going to give you a, a, a commentary that I love. I use it Whenever I preach, it's one of my go-tos. I have numerous ones, but the commentary I use is called Word Biblical Commentary. Word Biblical Commentary. It's, it, it is very, um, it, it's good in academia, but it's also has, it's very practical as well. What else you know? Trans, good translation, good commentary, a good community. We got a good community. We got that. And also, you need the Holy Spirit. It would be a shame to approach God's word. I, I refer to it as a text because that's what it is. But it would be a shame to approach God's word as only a text. To approach God's word without the one that actually inspired God's word. The Holy Spirit. I'm gonna, we're gonna, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in and give you this um, uh, a methodology, all right? So here's how we're going to interpret. It's called an inductive methodology. Are you ready to actually, uh, <laughs> are you ready to actually know how to, how to interpret, right? Like I think it's important now for us to learn some methods. An inductive methodology, and I misspelt methodology. Methodology, that's an O. You autocorrect it. That's the, that's the shame with having computers now, right? A red underline, right click, you fix it. All right, an inductive methodology. The first thing, we're going to make an observation. Say your scripture is Philippians 2. If you do a Bible reading plan or whatever it may be, whatever your scripture is, uh, whatever text you have, we're going to make an observation. This is our first step as we approach this text. We're going to ask the five W's and the H. The five W's. Who? What? When? Where? Why? And how? We're going to ask these. Like, like all right. Uh, who 
is this talking about? What are they talking about? When were they talking about it? Where are they talking about? Why are they, why is Paul writing 1 Corinthians 14? Why is he writing about putting limitations on what seem, let me put it this way, seem like limitations on the gifts of the spirit inside the context of the corporate gathering? And then you're going, how? Like, how is he doing this? We want to make note and observation of words that are repeated multiple times in a passage. Make notes of anything that we put on a list. Words that indicate a change in topic or time. Words that contrast one thing against another. Words that indicate cause and effect. But here's what we're not doing at this step. We're not at this step trying to place meaning on the text. We're actually just trying to observe it. We're just observing what's happening in Philippians. If you're just reading a scripture, we don't want to just read sentences. We want to read around those things to give us a context. I hate to break it to you. When the authors wrote in Greek and Hebrew, they didn't put chapters. They didn't put verses. That's just been put there over time for our help, for biblical memorization. Manuscripts do not have a verse and a chapter. If you were trying to find Philippians 2, you'd go to the Philippians manuscript and just have to read down till you think we're about started. And then you'd find yourself. They're there for our help, our benefit. The second, after we've observed, is interpretation. We're making an exegesis. Moving into interpretation. Interpretation is what does the text mean, right? What is the cultural, the historical context of the passage? What else do I know about the book? What else do I know about the author, the broader text of the passage? This is where the knowledge that you have and you grow and you dig into is going to help you in your interpretation, because the more you know, the more you able to apply. What are other scripture passages that might help better interpret this one? Have I overlooked anything? Have I made any assumptions? Am I coming to the interpretation of this text how I heard it preached 30 years ago? How I've heard it preached every single time? Or am I coming to how the te- what the text is actually saying? And then we're looking, what is the, actually the clearest meaning? The plain meaning of the text. Then we're going to do that, number three. We're going to do application. To read scripture, let me, let me actually say it like this. If you read scripture and you think you know what it means, but you don't apply it, you don't know what it means. You, you don't know what scripture means until it's put into action. The application is a what does this mean for me? How do I actually learn to apply this in my everyday life? Maybe you actually write it and you put, you start your sentence with, today I will dot, dot, dot. The word of God's living, it's active. Yeah, the word of God spoke in a context, in a place, but it wants 
the Holy Spirit wants to use it to speak to us now. So this is more of uh, an inductive methodology. This is a basic way. You're writing a sermon. You do something like that. Uh, I, I use another thing for more devotional reading. Uh, I try to do this every day. It's going to be very similar. I have a Bible reading plan that I do every day, but we call this SOAP. This is going to be more of a devotional reading. Um, I like I like the idea of soap because the word of God washes us. Come on, somebody. <laughs> we stinky sometimes. Got to get some soap. S is scripture. What is your scripture? You read your scripture. Uh, if you do a Bible reading plan, it's usually four chapters a day for the reading in the whole, whole year. Uh, your scripture is you write down one scripture that stuck out to you. Just one. You write it down in your journal. Then you're just going to make an observation and you're going to write it two to three sentences about what's actually happening. Around that. We're not getting real in-depth with the inductive methodology. This is devotional, we understand? And this is studying. We need a healthy appetite of both. Devotional helps us recognize the closeness of God. Studying makes us recognize the depths of God. We need both. You make a quick observation, three to four sentences, maybe five sentences, then you're going to have application. You're going to write three to four sentences, starting with this, today I will, and this is how you're applying that scripture, that one verse, into your life today. Then after you've written that, you're going to write a short prayer. Asking God, asking the Holy Spirit to grace you with the ability to do what he's calling you to do. We're about to do Q&A. Uh, any questions that people may have? I know I've, if I haven't already muddied the water a little bit for you. Um, and, and as we get to more specific in the other weeks, we're gonna, there's going to be a lot more hermeneutical insights that we talk about, exegesis things, of how we're approaching the text. We want to read literarily. We want to read, because the Bible, it, w- w- amazing, it is literature. It's not just God's word, like it is beautifully written. People have been studying, non-Christians have been studying it for thousands of years. But I want to give us some little hermeneutical insights. St. Augustine says this, uh, that interpreting the word of God appropriately leads to greater love of God and greater love of neighbor. You want to know how you're interpreting the word wrongly? It leads you to love God less or leads you to love people less. It's a great hermeneutical boundary, if you will. St. Irenaeus, Irenaeus, you hear me talk about him. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, I, I've said 2023, I want to become familiar with the church fathers and not just who they are, but I want to read them firsthand. I want to, I want to get them in my mind. I want to know how they thought. 
Um, so January for me is St. Irenaeus. I'm reading a couple of his works, so I'm, so I'm becoming familiar. So that, that's why he's so new, uh, so prevalent in my thought right now. But St. Irenaeus, he saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things and that all scripture points to Jesus. So 2 Timothy 3.16, we started reading, all scripture is inspired by God. If we understand in the context, and that's reading, Paul's writing to Timothy, they didn't have the New Testament. It was being circulated. But when he says scripture, he's not talking about the letter that he's writing or John. He's actually talking about the Torah, the Old Testament, the prophets. The early church only had the Old Testament but they understood the Old Testament in light of Jesus and they lived their life still hungry for God with the Old Testament by understanding that Jesus was the fulfillment of all things. Um, if you're interested, uh, there is a form of devotional reading uh, I would actually call it contemplative reading of scripture called Lectio Divina. That I like doing this. This is how I personally, Lectio Divina, it means it's Latin for divine meaning. It helps us work on our listening through the word. There's four steps First step is you're going to read slowly. You're going to read a passage twice. You're not going to come with meaning of the passage. You're just going to read it twice, maybe three times. Step two, you're going to meditate on it. Maybe there's going to be an image that pops out to your mind in that scripture. One verse that keeps popping up. You're just going to sit and meditate on it. Step three, is you're going to pray. You're going to pray that scripture. You're going to ask God to help you not understand it, but interact with the image that you're seeing of maybe it's Philippians 2, love one another. God, help me to love. Help, help me to love my neighbor. Show me where there's maybe anti-love in my heart. And step four, you're going to contemplate. You're going to sit and in quiet, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. This form of Bible reading was formed in the third century. People have been reading the Bible via Lectio Divina for over 1,800 years. So when we say, we want to interpret in community. We want to read how they've read <laughs> for a long, long, ouch, time. Whoops. It's getting used to that. All right. Questions? No test. Somebody asked, uh, is, there, is there homework in Sunday school? I said, No. And I said, great, I'm coming. <laughs> that was my <laughs> test. Uh, I do have a little bit of homework for you, though. But not, not really, not homework. It's just, it depends how much you want to get out of this and how we show up for the next one. Um, 
if you're just thinking through some questions. You don't have to have a question. That's fine. But we want to make sure that, that we're all going on this journey together. I don't want to leave anybody behind. There are no dumb questions. Um, if I don't have maybe a great answer to the question, um, I'll bring you an answer next week. It's that simple. We're all learning together. Um, Yes. Law number one. History number two. Number three, poetry. <clears throat> number four, wisdom. Whoops. Everybody got those? Number five, prophecy. Number six, gospels. Number seven, letters. <clears throat> letters. And the reason we're starting with epistles next week is because, um, well, the younger generation doesn't, but everybody's written a letter before. It's actually the easiest one for us to really understand. Because we're used to writing letters. Like we're used to, well, some, or an email. You know, the modern context is an email. Or maybe a text message. But how you write an email is different than how you write a text message. You may use emojis. A thousand years from now, they're going to be going, why was the Bible translated into emojis? Like, there's going to be like, that's weird, you know. I don't know. Number eight, narrative. Narrative is like story. And we'll get into all that, but number nine, apocalyptic. That's the hardest one for us to understand because we don't read and write in apocalyptic literature anymore. It just isn't a part of what we do. It was very popular in 100 BC up to 150 AD. There was a lot of apocalyptic literature. I have a question here um, that I wrote because I felt like it was something for us to get hit. What do I do if a section of scripture is hard to understand? Right? Let's do this. Ephesians chapter five. I'm gonna give you one scripture. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's great. You want to know the context of what that is actually in? Wives submit. Well, let's just read the verse before. Like, let's literally read the verse right before that. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The context of wives submit to your husbands is in the context of husbands submitting to their wives. <laughs> I mean, it's a basic way of understanding. Mutual submission is the context of Ephesians chapter five. What do you do if a section of scripture is hard to understand? Here's a hermeneutical law. I don't know if it's a law, but scripture interprets scripture. Because you can get the Bible to say whatever you want it to say. But let the Bible interpret the Bible. 
You can take one verse and create a whole doctrine off of it. That's not the point. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to see what is the whole countenance of God's word say about an issue. So if there's something unclear, the clear should interpret the unclear. Second Timothy, wives, or I do not permit a woman to speak in public. That's what Paul says. Timothy. That's like, it seems like it might be a clear passage. Now, clearly, we don't interpret it like that because we, uh, there's been some women talking tonight. <laughs> You know, um, this is the same man, Paul, who served with Phoebe, the apostle. It's the same man, Paul. Some of you are like, who's, who's Phoebe, the apostle? You just go look up Phoebe. He was an apostle. There was an apostle, a woman apostle? Yeah, there was a woman apostle. Um... Eunice and uh, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. Yes, Lois, Lois and Lane. No, I not, not you know. Um, so clearly, Paul permitted women to speak because he worked with women, appointed women as elders. So, so what, what what's going on here? How is he able to say I don't permit him to speak? Well, it, it, you look when you look at the context of what was happening in the church, uh, and the place that Timothy was at, the uh, that city had a god, a female goddess that was domineering over the men, and they were bringing this cult into the church. Well, we need to understand and interpret it in light of the context of what's happening. So the clear should interpret the unclear. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah. Um, so a good commentary would have that. Okay. Yep. Good commentary, you go to your scripture. Uh, word biblical commentary actually sets it up. Uh, it'll give you a whole intro to the book, but then you can go verse by verse and it'll look at the original language and look at like different ways that that could be translated. It'll get in the, you'll get in the weeds. And so uh, you can get in the weeds on some things. So a good commentary helps with that. Yep. Um, yes, ma'am? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The question was, how would you know uh, the context of how a book's been written. Like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, you know? How would we know that context that the people were in captivity when that was given to them and that they never actually lived to see what was promised? Like, how would we know that? Um, uh, all right, let's go to Jeremiah. Twenty nine. Let's say that Jeremiah 29, let's look at verses one through a little bit. One through three, one through four. Jeremiah wrote a letter, a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So already, verse one shows us the context, right? 
So he's writing a letter from Jerusalem to people that are in exile to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gamoria, son of Hilkiah. I just wish they'd translate these into John and Bob and Robert. And I'm just being facetious. To Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Jeremiah's letter said. So he's speaking just by reading 10 verses before we get the context of how it's being read. He's, he, he's laying it out. And then he's saying, well, where you are, he says, work, for, and he's speaking to people that are in captivity. They're slaves. Verse seven, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. What God's saying is, they didn't take you there, I did. You're not, was her, you're not in the situation that you're in right now by any other means because God wanted you to be in it. That's, that'll wreck our theology a little bit sometimes. Pray, for the, pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. He's saying, hey, you're slaves, you're in exile. Pray that God prospers the people that are beating you and abusing you and took you from your home. And he says, you will, and this is what the Lord says, verse 10, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. I'll bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. See, I would just kind of speaks in a new volume when you just read 10 verses earlier. It's great. Any other questions? Yeah, let's go. One translation kind of puts it. Uh huh. Um, is he doing that because of accuracy or because it's easier to understand or both? Uh, sometimes both. Um, translations are tools. They're tools for us to understand what God is saying, what God has said then, and what God is saying now. So that was the point of me kind of introing with this long intro about the KJV and the NIV wasn't to downplay or just completely discredit the KJV. Um, though, if you can tell, I probably have opinions on that. Um, but it's to show that translations are tools. They're tools for us to get to the meaning of God's word. And I think the fact that he does go back yeah. just confirms mm -hmm. the meaning yeah. of it. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I think pastors should go to school. 
still around too. So Jerome translated the Vulgate, um, and the purpose was, we, we want this in the common tongue. They realized as we're reading the Greek and the Hebrew, everybody speaks Latin now. Nobody knows what that is saying. So we, they translated it so that the word that was inspired could be uh, relayed for people to understand. So that was the purpose of that. Well, that purpose got changed, and they elevated that translation, um, there, there's still a push in Catholicism to, to, go, to go back to Latin services, solely Latin services, because they believe that is, that is, that is the text. I, I think, I think it, I, I think it's not. So yeah. Was the, was the translation of the, of the, the Bible into English, was that the stimulation of the Protestant revolution? Uh, no, it, um, no, Luther would have, it would have been, uh, he put the 99. So L- Luther's goal wasn't to break away from the Catholic Church. It was to reform the Catholic Church. Um, but the Catholic Church didn't want reforming at that time. The Catholic Church that, that is of today is probably a Catholic Church that Luther would have wanted um, because uh, they've, they have, it's taken a lot more time, but they believe that individuals can read the word together. We can actually hear God for ourselves. Then that, that's what he, that was a primary reason. Not the only reason, there's 99 theses. But a primary reason is he, he believes that it shouldn't be locked up. Some people in power, the word is not for the powerful. In fact, Jesus, I don't really recall one moment that Jesus said anything really nice to somebody in power. I've been really, I've been thinking about it. So if you know, I would love to know. I, I can't think of one. He was snarky to them. Herod said, show me a miracle. Jesus says nothing. That's kind of rude. <laughs> Don't you know that I can have you killed? Just ignored him. So he, uh, so Luther would flip that on the same. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Exactly. It's great. And traditions happened because we've been conditioned in a certain way. Society wants to condition us, which then turns into tradition. Uh, God wants to transform us. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great thought, not even really a question. Anything else? Uh, because another translation may not give you the, uh, like the historical context of what's happening, the literary context, how it'll break down a sentence, it'll do that. Another great tool 
is a Bible dictionary. You know, it'll look like the word Jericho. It'll show you all where it's all in the Bible, kind of give you a basic definition of what that is. It's a great, uh, great way. Blueletterbible.com, if you want to write that down, would be a great tool for you. If you want to get more in-depth beyond that, there's a program called Logos, L-O-G-O-S, that I would encourage you to get. That's what uh, Pastor and I use. This is what majority of pastors, but not just pastors, but scholars and professors use Logos, Logos, however you want to say it. Cool. And so we've never done this before with Sunday school, you know, in this type of way. So I don't know what to necessarily expect, um, but I, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, uh, I would bet that this is going to be one of the longer ones. So, you know, we're at right here at an hour and a half. We didn't start necessarily on time. I'm going to try to start as on time as possible, six o'clock. That way we can respect your time as much as possible. But for me, it didn't feel like, I don't know if you, you might have dozed off a couple of times. It didn't feel like it, it didn't feel quite that, quite that long. Next week, we're going to be looking at anything before I, before I move, move on. Yeah, no. So the goal of this is not to raise more questions in you. Uh, it's also to get us to to get the wheels turning. I mean, we are we want to th- we want to think. We want to be critical thinkers. We're not here to build robots, right? Yeah. Like beyond this night. Yeah, like so. Yes, so like tonight we talked on. Let's let's take let's take this. Some people are very passionate about the KJV, right? And they would hold a much different opinion than what I have. That's okay. I mean, I'm not. My goal is not to, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and if you read the KJV, I'm not telling anybody in this room not to read the KJV. That's not what the heart of what I was saying, right? The heart of what we we're saying is to get to this other point. But beyond tonight, there will be people that may uh, friends you know, family members spouses uh, that have a very dear passion into them uh, in that I, I uh, w- the goal is not for us to go from here with all the knowledge that we have and to uh, correct everybody else, right? The goal is for us to grow in love of God and love for one another, yeah. right? I love how St. Augustine said that. Like the goal of, interpretations love God and love another. Now, I also think like there's, there's times and places, like uh, there's a proverb, it says never correct a fool. The very next verse is always correct a fool. If you don't believe me, you can look it up. I think it's Proverbs 17, I could be wrong. Uh, never correct a fool. Next verse, always correct a fool. Well, what does it mean? 
I think discernment is so important. So the goal in here is not for us to leave and to hold signs up and say, uh, you can't hear God through the KJV, right? That's not, <laughs> it's not true, first off. Um, the goal is not to cause division. The goal is for us to grow and to learn. Um, and in that, there has to be, in a sense, as we grow in head knowledge, there has to be an even hum- more humbling of our spirit in that. Um, yeah. Does that help answer a little bit? Great. Yeah. 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 Yeah, understanding. I think that's the key word. <clears throat> understanding. Love conquer. And, and knowing where I used to be 10 years ago and where I am today is different. I've been on a journey with the Lord and recognizing somebody else made a different place, and that's okay. St. Augustine said this, in non-essentials, charity. In essentials, unity. We're Pentecostal. It's who we are. There's a lot of churches in our area that aren't Pentecostal. Very different views than us. We would say being Pentecostal is a non-essential to being a Christian. We're Christians before we're Pentecostals, amen? It's a non-essential, so we're going to live in charity. In essentials, we're going to have unity. What are the essentials? I think there's only two essentials, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We can agree on those things. That, that is what they said, the Apostles' Creed in 180, they said, this is what it means to be a Christian. And the Nicene Creed, this is what it means in 256 AD. I don't remember the exact time. Three, no, 326, 323, I don't know. Constantinople. That's what it means to be a Christian. And those things never change. Like, that will not, that, if you say, I think we need to uh, change, I've been reading my Bible, and I think the Nicene Creed's wrong. (laughs) You, that's heresy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, which is, I believe in God our Father, I believe in God the Son, Holy Spirit, uh, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. 
I actually would even um, add a third one, but uh, which would be um, the Chalcedonian Creed as well. The historic creeds of the church. Those are what we unify around and everything else we have charity in. Cool? Yeah. You asked if anybody uh, knew anybody in power that Jesus spoke nicely to. Yeah. His father. His father. I like that. I like that. Um, next week, we're going to be getting into the epistles. Again, if you want to read ahead, you want to grab, this is a great tool for you to have, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. Uh, and then a guy named Douglas Stewart. Gordon Fee does all the New Testament. Douglas Stewart does the Old Testament. This will be a part of some of the resources that we pull from. I have other ones if you're interested. Uh, one called Grasping God's Word. If you would like that, that's a lot bigger. Um, this is a lot easier to, to read. You'd think the language of grasping God's Word would make it a little easier, but it's not. Um, so... Uh, there's that. So we're on the epistles next week. If it, you don't have to, but if you if you are a homework person, here's what I would tell you: uh, read the epistles by next Sunday. Um, if you can't read all the epistles, it's okay. At least try to read the book of Galatians. Galatians will give us a great entry point into what Paul's saying, and we might spend a little extra time on that. And what I want you to do when you're reading that, just see if there's things that pop out to you, notice, that reoccur. Uh, when the letters were written, Philippians wasn't written in chapters, it was written to be sat down and read in one whole sitting. We don't read like that anymore. But it's important for us, it doesn't mean we have to change how we read, but it's important for us to read how they would read. <clears throat> they would have a church service, and the pastor would get up, and he would pull out a scroll of Philippians, and that was the sermon. And they might give an interpretation for their local context in that. They might would say something. Um, but that's kind of what it is. I think what's super cool, I, I think that'd be, like when we, Pastor and I have talked about this, uh, when we do a new book of the Bible on a Wednesday night, where that first Wednesday night, we literally just read it front to bottom. And we just try to hear it how it was supposed to be read. If you have any other questions, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm an open book. Uh, the goal of this is not to muddy the waters. The goal of this is to help each of us become more devoted Christ followers and uh, to be faithful to God and faithful to Scripture. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for us joining in on this journey. I pray, God, for your blessing on the next seven weeks of... Sunday school. I pray you bless our time together. I pray it'll get richer and richer every week. God, that we'll walk away, uh, God, having confidence for how to read your word on your terms. Lord, that we will not create a God in our image, but Lord, we will stand in front of you changed by the image of Jesus. Bless us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you.